My motto is education is elevation. So when we able to see the unique ways that Gen Z was able to mobilize in the streets of 2020, or able to mobilize on the virtual streets of TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, we recognize it's something important about education. When Ron DeSantis is saying, don't say gay deal, he's trying to make sure we don't educate the youth about heteronormativity, about homophobia, about transness. You see what I'm saying? And trying to make sure we don't educate the youth on the distinction between sex and gender. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Conscious Lee, who's a storied college debater and debate coach, a professional public speaker, and a content creator with over 2 million followers on TikTok, who uses his audience to advance diversity and inclusion, as well as many progressive causes for organizations like the ACLU. I was glad to have the chance to hear his story, how he grew up impecunious in a small town in Texas, but has worked to employ his communication skills for the benefit of society. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Conscious Lee. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Conscious, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. Consciously, self-proclaimed professional shit talker, motto, education is elevation, unapologetic black dude that love talking about politics, society, the economy, has a, a background in education. I just love using my portable skills that I was able to get into the classroom and sharing them with people on the internet. From what I understand, that's come to quite a number of people's attention. <laughs> Where did you grow up? What kind of family? What was your youth like? I grew up in uh, Bryan, Texas. I'm a little small town in Texas, about an hour and a half outside of uh, Houston. I grew up in, like I guess, a lower socioeconomic background, a community that had a high police presence and low employment rates. A lot of my experiences and my passion come from my upbringing. Both of my parents are convicted felons. Both of my parents have been experienced incarceration kind of, you know, at different points in my life. That's how I would explain it a little bit. You know, my small town had one high school when I graduated. I graduated as homecoming king, prom king, class president. I feel like I've always had a, a nice balance of everything. <laughs> you took care of business at school while also being part of the community, being a regular person. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and in some instances, the uh, extremes. I dealt with the extreme goods and extreme bads, the stereotypes of extreme coolness in terms of being a popular kid at a small high school or a big, a big high school in a small town, but also the extreme opposite of, okay, whatever you think of, of the most anti-black stereotypical 
thing, it's like, okay, I probably experienced a lot of those things as well. So really being able to recognize when I say balance somewhere in the middle is like my understanding for those things, how, how they impacted me, my psyche and how I move. I feel like it's been, you know. A while ago, I talked to Karan Butler. I don't know if you know him. He's a professional basketball player, now a coach. And he grew up in some tough circumstances, got into trouble quite a bit and as a 13, 14, 15 year old, but now is like a really freaking admirable person doing a lot of good in the world. Did you have run-ins yourself with the kind of difficult side or did you stay on the straight and narrow or how do you characterize your own behavior and, and habits growing up? Nah, for the most part, I was always treated as like the uh, ghetto kid gone good. Um, most of the time that I was in the classroom, especially from like really elementary school all the way through high school, I didn't really get in trouble much. Um, when I got to be a freshman at the University of Oklahoma, um, I went to jail uh, and I was in jail for like really like seven, eight hours. You know what I'm saying? And I never got in trouble again. So for the most part, I've I've dealt with my immediate family members in more ways than some being impacted by the prison industrial complex and shit. That was enough for me to be like, yeah, I don't want to do that. You feel me? So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a sensible thing. also sounds like you're probably a pretty smart kid if you were doing so well in school. What kind of things that you studied most interested you? History. Yeah. History. Yeah, history. <laughs> Do you think it was taught well in your high school? I mean, now you have paid a lot more attention to it and you have some strong opinions I've seen about things do you think it was taught to you in a reasonable way there's such a war going on right now more and more about how we teach people about this country and its history among other things this is a great question and i'm gonna try my best to give a nuanced response because i will applaud my teachers you know what i'm saying from definitely from like sixth grade all the way to like uh, to like 12th in terms of my history teachers being being able to convey the history lessons in a way that sparked my interest you know what I'm saying I can acknowledge that that was good, that was great, that brought me to where I'm at right now. But when he asked in the question technically about the actually how the history was taught from an ethical, moral standpoint, or even an empirical, this is what happened, what didn't happen standpoint, I would intellectually eat the lunch of any professor or history teacher I ever had in high school, or really in Brian ISD. Like if I came across a history teacher that I had in Brian ISD. I have multiple things that I would challenge them on from Texas history to American history to world history to geography to like, yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? To answer your question, yeah, like, yeah, definitely. They, they, it just, there was some problematic things. Give me an example of one of those that, that you remember that you would uh, eviscerate now, given the chance. Man, right now I'm talking to y'all from Houston, Texas. I would eviscerate, I'm talking about wipe the floor intellectually with anybody that tried to regurgitate what I was taught about Texas history. So if you believe in Stephen F. Austin and Bowie and Bowen and all of them Texas legends, the great example is how America and the American education system used white supremacy in a way to justify this conflict between Mexico and between, you know, the, the, the Americas by being, hey, uh, Davy Crockett, Jim uh, uh, Bowie, Bowen, they these are the, the the founding fathers of Texas and General Santa Ana, the evil brown man. He was a dictator. In actuality, you see what I'm saying? The Mexican government was actually very open to a lot of the uh, Texas settlers. You see what I'm saying? But it's taught to us as if, hey, General Santa Ana was doing something. He was a dictator and he didn't like them because he didn't like them. When in actuality, like, no, these English settlers 
were literally breaking Mexican law about slavery. So it's not told to me as a young black boy that, hey, the reason why the Mexican army is beefing with these so-called American Texans is because they are breaking Mexican law and bringing in enslaved Africans and trying to say they are servants. No, they are not servants. They are enslaved people. You know what I'm saying? Just keep on so, so many examples. I couldn't even tell you who are the native inhabitants of Bryan, Texas, but I can tell you the European settlers in Bryan, Texas. You see what I'm saying? I can tell you, I can keep on going, going on and on and on, but it's like, yeah, I, yeah. What was the process by which you came to understand that the things that you were taught were a little flipped from maybe the realities of the system there? I was raised by an old black woman and an old black man and my parents, you feel me, helped them. <laughs> or no, I say I, I was raised by a village, right? And in recognizing I was raised by a village, a lot of the things that's being taught to me by mainstream world is already being counter taught to me by my, you feel me, immediate world. So I've already was kind of conscious of what the white people teach me at school might not be the same thing that my black parents or my black grandma or my black whatever agree with. So I was already, I feel like, having a little discernment from what was going on and this, that, and the other. I think that when I got to actually being real, in 2008, I was a senior in high school. And in Texas, you was chastised for not being patriotic and not standing every single day at the beginning of the school for the flag. But the Texas anthem and the American anthem. The day after Barack Obama got elected, i never forget this. A lot of those red, white, and blue patriotic, you put some respect on the military and flag folks, did not want to stand. 17-year-old George Lee, not consciously, 17-year-old George Lee thought like, hmm, this is very interesting here. And then when I got to college, that process of unlearning and relearning, it just took place. You feel me? Just slowly but surely made it where uh, I started learning things. I learned that, you know, Native Americans had sophisticated systems. I learned that, you know, there were a, a, over 500 treaties the American government broke. So when I'm taught, you know what I'm saying, in Texas that, hey, them damn Indians, they, they, they ain't I fault they got conquered. They would have fought a little harder. They would have, that's how it's being taught to me. It's not being taught to me what colonialism is. So just, I feel like it's slowly undoing stuff. Where was it you went to college? I went to the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> Why there? Uh, I had a speech and communications uh, professor or teacher in um in a uh, seventh and eighth grade at Sam Rayburn Middle School in Bryan named Miss Byerly and Miss Byerly was a staunch OU Sooner you feel me alumni and because I grew up in Bryan Texas my family members and people that was a part of my support system they didn't want me to go to Texas A and M University because I would get in trouble or be still still around the hood still be around you know what I'm saying so I went to OU for two reasons specifically. I had an opportunity to intern for the state Supreme Court Justice of Oklahoma. And I had the opportunity to be a part of a scholarship program called the President, President Leadership Program. And those were kind of the two deciding factors of why I decided to cross the state border and take my Texan behind up to Oklahoma. I uh, grew up in Colorado and used to watch the OU football team come into town and play the Colorado Buffaloes, and they were always a beast of a team. And uh, I got my sense of that university from some of the crazy fans uh, there. What was your experience like at that university? 
was it a big change from from high school? Oh yeah, it was a huge yeah. change. Yeah, high school it was pretty even the demographics in terms of the students, the student population. It was like I feel like thirty percent white, thirty percent black, thirty percent Latino. When I got to University of o- Oklahoma, it's a predominantly white institution. Um, I got there six one, one seventy, soaking wet. And even though I was not a football player or a track player or a basketball player, I recognized that my black body was a lot of people projected identities onto my body based off of what people were used to seeing black people be at the university. But I started to learn in college, like how how what I'm going to say, like the uh, transcendental nature of whiteness operates. People will come to me and be like, hey, are you a football player? Are you a basketball player? I get it. I'm a black man at a predominantly white institution. It's a powerhouse D1, you know what I'm saying, university for all these things. I never would go to a white student and ask them, hey, man, you must be a, a, a police officer. You must come to school to be a, a, a cop or, or a lawyer. Or it's like I didn't get to ask you or think about what your presence was at the university based off of your race. But it was a normalized thing for people to come to me and, and I'll assume that I have a jersey number or assume that I'm there on scholarship to play a sport. The thing that was crazy about it is at that time, I'm literally one of the highest ranked debaters in the country. So I'm debating people on whether I'm a debater or not or whether I play sports or not. So just different experiences that I had at the University of Oklahoma, I think some were good, some were bad. But I think that in terms of the passion that people get from me, in terms of the tenacity and integrity people get from me, and when it comes to oppression and power, there will allow experiences that I had at the University of Oklahoma that make it where I'm looking to wreak havoc on systems, uh, systems and institutions that I think that are structured in anti-blackness. And OU lit that fire up under my butt in many different ways for the good and for the bad, but we out here now. 61170 happens to be exactly what I weighed coming out of high school. And I end up 6'2", and unfortunately have gotten well over 170 over time. That to me is the physique of a debater. You know, that's pretty obvious. You look at that, you say, tall, skinny, smart guy, that person can debate. Had you debated in high school? Had you done that, but you just had that in your nature? Yeah, that's had it in my nature. What happened was in high school, I did extemporaneous speech. And I did uh, poetry. I was uh, I, did, I did poetry. That's what those are the two uh, speaking events I did in uh, in high school. And uh, actually thinking about it, like the reason why I am the way I am, right? I really showed up. Me, uh, this black girl I was going to school with, and my homeboy Tobias, this black boy. Three of actually it was four of us: two black girls, two black boys. We show up in my high school to the debate program, asking to debate. The teacher at the time discouraged us from debating and thought that we wouldn't be able to handle it and thought that it would be too much work and literally gave us poetry books. Now, the thing that's funny to me is that my high school debate coach also had a horrible debate career in college. I graduated college as a Hall of Fame debater. The high school coach told me that I didn't think that I was going to be able to keep up with the work. So when you think about the, the way I talk about white supremacy and anti-blackness as a 32-year-old, I can go back through my life archive and identify multiple ways in which white supremacy, anti-blackness, racism, whatever you want to call it, has impacted what I had access to, what opportunities I had, the little access I had, and how I was understood. You feel me? I think that's very important. So you you show up at college. How did you decide to join? I guess it's a debate team that turns you into a Hall of Fame debater. How, where did you find that, and why did you decide to go after that? I really, uh, 
I really turned it down. Like when I first got the OU, I had the opportunity to be on the debate team. I said I wouldn't, I ain't, I ain't want to do it really. And then um, my freshman year, I took this class about African American studies, like fifteen. Uh, African-American studies, 1800s to present. And I learned about uh, rock and roll and uh, Chuck Berry and all that. And I actually got into a debate with one of the people in the class. And another person, another classmate, in the uh, somebody else in the class was a debater. And they asked me after class, like, hey, have you ever thought about being a debater? I'm like, hell no. Nah. I'm not interested. I'll holler at you. <laughs> I seen him again and we had a real meaningful conversation. And he was like, at that time I was so raw, he was like, uh, so you like talking about social issues? I'm like, social issues? What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? I ain't really have the verbiage or the language to be able to, what I was talking to. So he introduced me to the debate coach and really the rest is history. I walked on to the debate. I walked on to the University of Oklahoma policy debate team as a sophomore. And by the time I was, you know, uh, a senior, I was one of the top teams in the country. What was it about you that was so good at debate? I mean, I can tell you're a very verbal person and, qu- and kind of quick minded, but what made you effective? Uh, I think that when I, when I learned like what the, how Aristotle understood wisdom, like, I think that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a know-it-all, but a know-it-all that knows his limits. So I think what makes me a great debater is that I understand the limits of my knowledge and I'm not going to overcompensate in a debate for the limits of my knowledge. So if you, if you told me something and asked me, did I know it? And I don't know it. I would tell you, I don't know it. Even if we're in a debate, it's like now you have to me not knowing it's not an argument. You have to beat me. You know what I mean? So I think what made me a great debater is that I never leaned on the traditional ideas of how we should debate. And I really questioned in terms of policy debate, all those norms. So I came into it thinking like, hey, I already think for myself. I already have my own way of moving, my own way of seeing. If we're debating, everything is debatable. I have nothing that I've conformed to that I believe is non-debatable or non-negotiable. I think that was one of my best attributes in debate. And then the last thing was I was an amazing cross-sexer. You talk for five or nine minutes and I get three minutes to ask you questions. I think that I'm going to, I think I'm going to be figure out how to win that debate in the first cross-sex of the debate. I've never done debate in a formal way and I don't think I'd be very good at it, but (laughs) my sense is that sometimes you have to argue a position that you don't, that isn't even your position. Is that right? Yes and no. There, there is in, 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 in policy debate in America, whether you're debating on college level or high school level, there is a concept called switch side debate. Switch side debate is a, is a, is a understanding that debate is about us trying to become well-rounded advocates, well-rounded intellectuals, well-rounded academics. And the only way for us to be well-rounded academics or advocates or policymakers is to debate both sides. How I was able to build my career uniquely was debating against the idea of switch side debate because it comes from a very, uh, a, a nebulous, almost a view from nowhere. If I'm telling you that the United States federal government is racist and if the United States, the policy making system has this, that and the other, I don't need to debate that racism for America is good for me to be understanding the full roundedness of you see what I'm getting. It's like I don't need to debate you on. Hey, I say uh, this policy leads to sexism. Sexism is bad. I don't need to flip sides to understand the totality of sexism. So when we start thinking about how switch side debate works in terms of that hubris of, hey, you have to debate for and against everything. That's the only way you know. It falls on deaf ears when we start talking about the tradition of debate of being like, hey, the affirmative should always say this is what the government should do. The negative should always say, what about this? 
We never switch side where the affirmative is now saying, instead of doing the government, we're going to do this. So the switch side is always who has to switch sides. That switching sides usually means, hey, man, you got to be for tradition. In this instance, you got to be against tradition, but in a traditional way. And it's like, no, nah, I ain't want to do that. So I really I really built the debate career on the affirmative, telling Harvard and, 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 and University of Texas and all these schools like, no, nah, you kiss my black ass. I don't have to switch sides on the notion of oppression to tell you oppression is bad. And if that you think that you had a bad model of education in the way that you debate should really be, uh, uh, I'm indicting. I'm indicting. It's a bad model of education. It makes oppressed people say they have to play the oppressor and or role play that to do it. And you don't need to do that. You sm- we smarter than that now. We passed that point. Fascinating. I've always sort of honored the debaters, the quick talkers who are on the right side of things. And I don't like the ones that aren't. I mean, you're one of your senators, one of my least favorite people in the world. Ted Cruz was a super accomplished debater uh, in high in school, college, in high school <laughs> uh, maybe in college. I don't know. I don't know his career and I, and I don't like what he has to say, but like uh, has to, it's funny how you've turned this or this accomplished side of yourself in debating into part of your career, haven't you? Definitely. Yeah. Um, tell me about the course of your life was after college. So you graduate, what did you start to do for work and how did you move into a life? <laughs> hey, I laugh because I graduated OU in 2014. After I graduated, I was a graduate assistant for the UC Berkeley debate team for a semester. And then I was a graduate assistant for the University of Florida debate team for a semester. And then while I was in grad school, I went to grad school for adult and higher education and human relations. I ended up becoming the graduate assistant and then assistant debate coach for the University of Oklahoma. I finally graduated with my master's degrees in 2017. I get a um, raise, a promotion, or you know what I'm saying? I, I pretty much go from being the assistant coach to the assistant director to the director of the debate program. And that's really what I did. As my main job after after I was done with college, I was debate coach and a professor. While I'm being a professor and while I'm doing this debate coach stuff, that's when I stumbled across TikTok. And then being real, I already started doing social media before TikTok because I was a public speaker and I was trying to use social media as a means to promote and advertise my skills as a public speaker to get more bookings. And it just snowballed into what so it's us talking right now. Like it wasn't that it wasn't that you know what I'm saying it, it's it's happening to what's happening now. And it's kind of like a no. Well, that's an amazing trajectory from not being sure you want to be on the debate team to tackling it, to being a star at it, to being a coach at it and teaching other people. That's you got to be pretty proud of that. I definitely uh, am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you get on TikTok. And of course, that's the way that you come to me as a person that that I should talk to, because I talk to people who are entrepreneurs in progressive politics and people who are trying to turn the country for the better, protect our democracy, all of those things that, uh, that I am, I'm very grateful to the people I talk to that they're doing. And there's an awful lot of work to be done. What I was told about you was like, here's this young man who is a incredible content creator on TikTok, and he has relationships with progressive organizations and helps use his large audience, which when I look at your TikTok 
page, we're talking about 2.2 million people that are following you, which is uh, a lot. You know, you got some ways to go to get to 20 million or something. But, yeah, you know, you know. Pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. I, I've spent some time looking at your videos. I find it particularly amusing when you have some white legislator in Oklahoma justifying their regulation of education in a way that sounds so incredibly ignorant. And your, your shtick, I would say, is you superimpose yourself on that video and you just make facial expressions. And you're like, what the fuck, you know? He said, what? And then you, then you spend some time explaining your point of view, which I think is a really effective way to do things. Some percentage of the people who listen to this podcast don't really know TikTok, don't really know this world of creating these short videos, teaching people things. Can you explain that a little bit? Explain what you're up to and why it's done as well as it has? Man, I, I would say from a social media standpoint, TikTok is revolutionary in the ways that when you first got on Facebook or first got on the Instagram, the people that saw your content was only the people that were your friends or that followed you. You feel me? Your classmate, your coworker, your grandma, your cousin, whatever, those people that saw it. What's revolutionary about the TikTok for you page is that you will be able to post some content. And even if you have zero followers, you're able to get a million views. So the way that TikTok was able to give exposure to content was really revolutionary to really all of the social media platforms because now I have this, this, this wide audience. I think that what becomes different about TikTok is that because it has it's so open and it makes it where, hey, man, you can get on there with no followers, drop some heat. And you feel me? Hey, just depending on how that how, how that video hits the algorithm and depending on how good it is, it can do it can do amazing with no followers. I think that what makes a lot of the uh, policymakers that are against progressivism upset is that there are a lot of implications about TikTok that I think that makes them get paranoid and or they see as a threat. So when you think about the ways in which Donald Trump was able to do uh, rallies for his presidency and uh, what was the last one we did? Shit, 2020, the last one we did, he went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was in Oklahoma at the time. And the Gen Zers thought it would be a funny idea to literally book or get all the Trump tickets to this rally and not show up. Shows up to a rally in Tulsa and it's empty. I'm also recognizing from a journalist standpoint on TikTok. Now I don't have to go. Like I was invited to the White House to view the State of the Union address and share my perspective of the State of the Union address in the White House to my followers. What they recognize, you feel me, is that most Americans are more likely to get their news from a TikToker than they use from Tucker Carlson. You see what I'm saying? So now that we understand that, it's like thinking about how TikTok becomes through your phone. It's like literally, I would call it TikTok University. You like dogs, you like cats, but you want to watch a, a fish video, but you want to learn how to air fry, but you want to get into politics, society, economy. There's literally infinite size of TikTok that allow for you to read, that allow for you to learn. And there's been different ways from the time TikTok has been around and real popular. It's been around before 2019, but in 2019, when it started gaining popularity, it has been the, the literally the, 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 the thorn in Republican side on how we're able to mobilize on TikTok. Hope that expired. You can ask follow up questions, but I hope that kind of gave a big picture. Well, yeah. So tell me about like 
your trajectory. What's the first time you do a video? How is that? How is that received? Why do you do a second one? Like, how does this get going? And what are you thinking? Man, really, um, my homeboy, uh, Big Ben, and uh, I feel like the uh, the white the white guru. You feel me? Of social media, Gary V. I came across Gary V. Video in 2019, the summer, and then my homeboy hit me like a few days later and was like, "Hey, this new app called TikTok. Hop on it." And if you have content from any other world, you can just post it on there. At the same, at, at that time, uh, Soldier Boy had did this viral uh, interview on Breakfast Club where he was talking about how he pioneered things. My first two videos on TikTok was really me dancing, like me trying to dance. Not that good, but me trying to dance and be funny. And the reason why I kept on posting this because I'm, 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 I'm already adamant at this point about trying to be a content creator through the means of trying to get more bookings. So I'm just throwing, really throwing shit at the wall to go for what sticks. The third video, I make a video about this 10-year-old Ohio kid that got charged with assault for hitting this white kid in the head with a dodgeball while playing a game of dodgeball in school. Now, the charges got dropped, but I made the video about how, you know, in our country, we say we should let the kids be kids, but we recognize that black children don't get the same space and place to be innocent or to this, that, and the other. 95, I thought I must have read some statistics and this, that, and the other. At the time, I say I had 187 followers. 187 followers that video hit like 9,000 views at the time i had been on instagram for shit like five years i had 5,000 followers on, on instagram and i had never had a video that hit a thousand views so the release of dopamines and, you know, <laughs> and the, the, the what i'm like oh where is what we doing so i was sold being honest with you and then at that time at that time in 2019 i'm 28 years old most of tiktok is dancers and lip singers and comedians. That's most of TikTok. When I'm on TikTok in 2019, really ain't nobody talking about black issues and really politics. You see what I'm saying? Not me. So it was easy for me to dominate it and wasn't no celebrities. That's something that's too. TikTok proliferated in such a cool way that it became where celebrities had to be on there to be able to, you know what I'm saying, expand their brand. I feel like that shows you the power of TikTok. Yeah, that 9,000 views it's exciting to feel like people are are looking at what you're doing and maybe you can influence them and so on. Yeah. How did it go from there? Man, from, from, from there really is just me, me being able to spread my wings and fly and being able to kind of uh, deprogram myself and thinking about the insecurities and thinking about the ways that people in my community or people in my class or people that I see on the internet are going to come at me. I'm a cisgender straight black man from the hood that's talking about trans identities and talking about misogyny and talking about white supremacy. So it made it where the process at that time now, I'm really just trying to put one foot in front of the other and figuring out how to have a good camera presence, figuring out how to be myself behind that camera in a way where I'm really fearless. And it's like, hey, I'm not going to say nothing I can't defend. If I can defend it, I'm going to say it without my chest. And that's really what I started figuring out then. At that time, Instagram still ain't doing me no good. And I'm slowly, slowly going. But me looking at my phone a few days ago, I really went from like 187 followers to like 10,000 in like two weeks. You feel me? And then that's when I started becoming a content machine. What have you found works the best? Does it feel like a formula to you? Does it sometimes following that formula not work and you have to figure out a new formula? What is the mental process for you for like, I, I'm ready to do the next one? This is what I'm going to do it about. I feel like it's partially a, uh, a formula. 
I got ADHD. And when I learned to have ADHD and learn more about ADHD, I realized that I benefited in many different ways from having ADHD and being a content creator. Because a lot of the formula is I go off my impulsive feeling and I know that if I don't think about it a lot and it come out, that's the best video. Like I can dead ass do a video right now and show you how I do it. But it's just really like that. That's the formula. The formula for me is most things not putting too much thought into it. And just saying, it. I already speak with kind of word soup sometimes and make it where I'm using these big ass syllables and this, that, and the other, or words of well, the mini syllables, and it make it where sometimes my content is not seen as relatable. So I feel like when I'm doing it off the cuffs and I stutter a little bit, or you know, I'm real country, I, I mispronounce, mispronounce the word, that's when my videos are the best. And when I'm not thinking about how, what anybody else gonna say, when I'm thinking about, can I defend this and do I really feel this? And then really thinking about, like, I know if I'm presenting some news, that's good. I know if I'm responding to somebody, that's good. I know that if I'm going to dance or try to be funny in a way that's not really good, that's going to be good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know I know there's certain types of content that I know that I'm, okay, I'm good on this one. Now, will it hit every time? Hell no. Nah. But you feel me? My, my, my probability is, is, is high. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what you go with. Um, it sounds like it's being real, being you. And in your case, being political in the way that you believe yeah yeah yeah. yeah. but it's easier said than done yeah even me knowing that i would say i've been i've been on as a content creator since 2019 that's what i would say it's 2023 in 2023 i'm still having to go back and remind myself and like literally ask myself hey what you doing this for don't get caught up in the validations don't get caught up in the negations don't get caught up in the, you see what I'm saying? It's easy to get too caught up on the highs, too caught up in the lows. And as a content curator, especially when you're doing it full time, a lot of us get caught up in chasing the views. Once you're caught up in chasing the views, you're no longer sticking to you. You're saying what you're going to do to get some views. So me, it's all, always about staying humble, staying grounded, staying like, hey, this is what got me here. Don't switch your shit up now. This is what got me here. Being real, saying what's on my mind, saying this, that, and the other. Don't start trying to make it where I'm saying what I'm saying to get that deal or get that promotion or get anybody there. That's not what got me here. What got me here is doing this. So I have to remind myself, and even remind me, my mind, my followers, people that don't like me. Hey, listen, I have a following because of what I say. I don't say what I say because I have a following. I'm going to repeat that. The reason why I'm saying what I'm saying it's not because I have a following. The reason why I have a following is because I'm saying what I'm saying. So never question my genuine or sincerity on what message I've given. If I've said it, best believe I've thought about it for a little bit and I've thought about it from a few different perspectives. If I make a video about it, I can defend it in a debate. How are you doing on the humility? Typically, when you start getting noticed, you've been getting awards, NAACP nominations, things like this, you know, or image awards and whatnot. It changes you. It's hard, I think, to keep to that, to that real you when you've been elevated a little bit by success. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm, I'm very, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm proud of myself. I worked my ass off to get to where I'm at. Me, I say two things. I've always thought about, I feel like the world and how I represent stuff through a collective idea, a collective identity and not an individual one. So I know that regardless of how big consciously gets, it doesn't mean that my mama, my daddy, the people on West side of Brian, who I really advocate for, it don't mean they living good. You see what I'm saying? So for me, it's like, Hey, you got 2 million followers. You got 10 million followers, but if you still got people that's eating sleep for dinner, 
if you still got, you know what I'm saying? Like now, when I, when I live in Oklahoma, it was easy for me to kind of get lost in the sauce. I live in Houston now. I live an hour and a half from my hometown. You know what I'm saying? Right now, as we speak, you feel me? Shit, I got family members, parents that's dealing with the impression industrial complex. That you see what I'm saying? That's how I, that's how that's how I'm here. You feel that, what I mean? That's, like, I don't that's a it. that's a grounding thing. That's almost exactly what. By the way, Karen Butler said to me. Yeah, Karan Butler, somebody yeah. that I really grew up watching. He's that's a wizard legend. You feel like when you say I'm like, yeah. man, shout out to Karan, man. Shout out to Mr. You know what I'm saying? I know, OB because Butler. he's hey, I'm like, you you've become like this famous person with millions of people watching you. How are you gonna deal with the regular people that you grew up with in Wisconsin? He's like, I am going back there all the time. I'm connected to that. I, I am just still me. You know, and I have to be, and I and I get that, you know. But I I do watch people who lose themselves in it's things easy. that they do. Yeah, it's easy. It it's easy. I I don't want to chastise nobody for you feel me going on some you know uh, different journeys through mental health. I know that all of us have different trials and tribulations, and we all trigger differently. Um, I think that since I've learned I have ADHD, I've learned a lot more about neuro neurodivergency. I've learned a lot more about neurotypical people. And what I would say is that most of us in social media, you feel me? It's a little, it's a little generalization, but I'm cool with the generalization. I think most of us in social media, we are a part of that neurotypical spectrum. You feel me? Someone who I think is not, not neurotypical, who was a star on social media who's totally on the other end of the political spectrum from you was a former president Trump. Nah, like, yeah, he, nah. that dude, that dude got a following and he taught the country so many things that were the opposite of what we should be taught. Although a lot of people reacted to it and did the right thing. What's your analysis of why he had success, what he did that got so many people to like, follow his stupid tweets all the time man i got a lot of thoughts on that one i'm not i'm not a psychiatrist so i can't you know what i'm saying clinically uh, uh, diagnose somebody but trump has a lot of adhd symptoms from the inattentiveness to the impulsivity to the emotional dysregulation to the talking a lot when he has anxiety to the you feel me what i'm saying so to me donald trump was able to benefit off of uh white backlash I would say that throughout history, when black people progress, it's always met with white backlash in the progression that black people were able to symbolically experience through the presidency of Barack Obama pissed off a lot of white people. Donald Trump was able to catapult, make America great again off of literal sentiments of white backlash, i.e. those black people going a little further is taking away something for me. And you know what I need to do? I need somebody to come by and make America great again. I think that that's what that's like in its most simplistic way. That's what Donald Trump benefited from. You feel me? We can sprinkle in a little bit of white privilege because we think about, hey, Barack Obama wore a cream suit and had a selfie stick in the Oval Office. And all the Republicans went crazy and talked about how unprecedented it was. You know what I'm saying? There were a lot of things that Donald Trump did that does not meet the same standard of this backlash and outrage that conservatives have for Barack Obama wearing a, a cream suit then you, him having this many baby mamas then him you feel me it's a lot of things we keep on going so to me it's like white privilege white backlash so I mean so he tapped into that that element of our country there's no question about that but there's also something about the technique I think you're getting at it a little bit when you talk about maybe he's got some ADHD I would say he's got some 
a fair dollop of narcissism and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that, that probably lands, you know, in different chapters of your intro psych class. But do you think there was anything about like the way he delivered the material Mm -hmm. that, that you observed? Yeah. I think that Trump, Trump, regardless of how I feel about him, he was a genius in the way that he was able to subvert respectability politics. Growing up in Texas, a lot of white people were able to police black people and what we should do and should not do under the guise of respectability politics. Meaning, you feel me, if you go outside of the morals and ethics that mainstream America has set, then you bad and therefore you this, that and the other. Trump was able to strategically subvert that by saying, no, the problem with America is respectability politics. I miss the good old days of being able to say what I want and say as I feel. A part of ADHD is executive dysfunction or executive functioning. So a lot of ways that most people are able to think about what they want to say and not say and suppress it, it's harder for me to do it with ADHD. When I see Trump going on all these all these rants and raves, it's like he, he doesn't have to have a support system to check him on what he says, because there's usually no consequences to what he says. If you want to say grab him by the pussy, grab him by the pussy. If he wants to call you a dirty woman, you're a dirty woman. If he want to tell you he has somebody punch you in the face, he can say that. So whatever impulsively comes to mind, he's able to say that and he's able to push through it by being like, no, nah, the world has gotten sensitive. This is fake outrage and these alternative facts. If I want to say it the way I wanted to say it, this, that, and the other. But it's like, well, you don't think that you were sensitive if you felt like my grandmother or grandfather could not say what they wanted to say if it hurt your feelings? You don't think that's sensitive? You don't think it's sensitive? You think it's the good old days? Okay. And he gave a lot of people permission to subvert that respectability. No yeah. question. Yeah. 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 Definitely. 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 Almost, almost, how, almost how I see it in terms of power. More minorities started to gain power and a lot of different white people throughout the country felt like them getting that power was them being oppressed. So when you think about how Donald Trump was able to uniquely get people out to the polls in the North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Missouri, that had not been uh, active since Ronald Reagan. Why? 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 They felt like they were losing something. You see what I'm saying? I think that that's the part of being like, hold on, guys. Maybe this respectability politics thing isn't working out because the blacks and the Latinos and the gays have figured out a way to use it against us. Maybe we shouldn't do it this way. And then that's when it became bad. I'm curious if you have a take on Governor DeSantis of Florida. Governor Governor DeSantis of Florida is the par excellence of how a lot of people on the left and liberals want to view conservatives as being dumbasses and how Ron DeSantis is using that to his advantage. Ron DeSantis, somebody that has a degree in history, somebody that's from the Ivy League, you see what I'm saying? But he's able to use what he learned to make things like don't say gay bill. So to me, it's like conservative contradictions. Y'all talk all that shit about socialism and communism. And then you will crown people as your king that literally puts socialist and communist practices that you say are bad, but not the good socialism and communism. The dictator authoritarian the dictator comes to them saying socialism and communism. So to me, it just shows that our country's public education is trash and that people like DeSantis are able to really pimp people, coerce people into, I feel like, making political decisions that are bad. You mentioned getting to go to the White House and clearly you you're invited to something like that, I presume, because you have an audience and because you have something to say. It's not just an honor. It's also tells us something 
now about the way that politics and audiences and social media is part of the way we govern and the way we think about, about things now. What I'm I'm curious about is how have you found ways to harness the audience that you have, the voice you have to to kind of become part of the progressive fight? I have a sense that you've done some things along those lines. Tell me about that. I'm very reflective on how I'm implicated in things that are bad, or I'm, I'm very conscious of the things that I'm implicated in that I advocate against. And that's how I've been able to kind of think about progressivism, but also me being in debate and thinking about uniquely what happens in the black community. I was able to learn so much about progressivism, the good and the bad. So I know a lot of times I'm able to I feel like present myself as such because through debate, I was really forced to think about and read everything that has to do with what I'm doing. So I know like the best arguments for it and against it, whether I agree with them or not. I hope that answers your question. I'm not sure though. Well, so, so tell me, are there groups, progressive groups that you work with to help them further their uh, mission? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, the Hoochies of Texas is this uh, nonprofit a group of black women that are for reproductive rights in Texas. I like working with them. Um, I do some work with a, 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 a ACLU. American Civil Liberties Union? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, do, I do a lot of work with them. Uh, specifically. Okay, so stop on that for a second, because ACLU is a, a very eminent legal organization and advocacy organization that is protecting civil rights for our citizens. It's a really important group. What have you done with them? I've done a numerous campaigns specifically about policies and legislations that's targeting trans youth. I've also done something with them uh, about reproductive rights in abortion and, you know what I'm saying, things like that. But I've worked on like, uh, I say like at least at least three or four different projects with with, uh, with them. So when you work with them on a project, what ends up happening? Are you creating content that matches what their campaign is? What's the mechanics of that? The mechanics would be like, hey, consciously, we see you are, you know I'm saying, uh, the ally of the LGBT community. We know that you have an audience, you know what I'm saying, that has a lot of people that's into those as well. Uh, here goes this press kit, you know, and uh, feel free to do it as you please. Or, you know, um, we're pushing for this bill. We want uh, people, your followers to call, you know, their policymakers to get them to advocate for something. You know what I'm saying? Or we're going to do this petition and you see this video, I want you to go sign the petition. You know what I'm saying? So there's different ways like that. Who else have you worked with? Let's see. Uh, PBS, working with them about reparations right now, doing something with them about reparations. A lot of different groups, you feel me? A lot of different nonprofit groups, change.org. Uh, I've done something with uh, with uh, Kataji Brown Jackson. They, they got they got um, elected. I, I helped, helped a part of the campaign after she got elected, talking about the highlights of it and, and significance of it. Um, put on the Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But I've done stuff about uh, climate change with some organizations about climate change and uh, global warming. I really would have to look at a list. I've done a lot of different stuff. You're a busy man. You got a lot going on. You came to me through a guy named uh, Ashwath. My boy, yeah, yeah, out to Ashwath. Yeah, that, that group yeah. right there. His organ, I can't think about his organ. They didn't change their name a few times. That's the reason why I couldn't think they're, of it. They're social current social at current. the moment. Current where they spell Current with a A like the the fruit, not the E like the right now. Um, they they are one of the things that they're doing is interfacing with a lot of different content curation curators or creators like like you and trying to help progressive groups get messages out 
by connecting with people like you who have audiences who are willing to cooperate and help out. What's your experience been with them so far with Social Current? I feel like it's been a dope experience. I know that there's a ecosystem of progressives on social media and there are a lot of moving parts. And Social Current has been a smooth liaison between a lot of big, big capital I issues and you feel me, uh, capital C content creators and bringing them together. You know what I mean? So that's been that's been pretty dope. And then they've been able to do a lot of state issues, like state I'm saying level stuff, federal level things and things from race to class, to gender to ability to sexuality to the environment. So they kind of like very interdisciplinary, very intersectional. When you think about progressive content creators on TikTok, who do you pay attention to? Who else is out there that you think is doing good work? I say uh, Crutches and Spice. Yeah. Uh, Does it make me a very ignorant man that I have never heard of these people? You have to be following stuff on TikTok. You have to, that has to be part of your world. How would I come across them if I'm just uh, scrolling endlessly? on TikTok videos. If I'm looking at yours, are theirs going to get served up? Yep, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you just go to the search engine, really on any social media platform, all social media platforms, what would they say? If you don't pay for the product, then you are the product. In social media, us as human beings, we are the product. So when you get on the social media app and you type in anything, the algorithm is trying to curate content to send your way. So if you go to TikTok and you type in any of these people's name that I said or any issue, you're now going to start getting more content and more content creators that talk about that particular thing. And that's pretty much how you do it. That's how the search and discovery really works. Do you have a sense of how the right wing is doing on TikTok? Do you pay attention to that? Do you have any sense whether they are equally using the platform more or less to advance opinions? I would say they better. That's not good to hear. What makes you think that? On the left, within liberalism and leftists, there are, there is a lot of infighting that's very ideological. That a lot of times is needed, but it gets in the way of how we're able to build coalitions and solidarity. Republicans, we can call them as dumb as you would like, but when it's time to put the bullshit to the side and get to work, they know how to do that. You see what I'm saying? So when you think about the way in which how Republicans are able to mobilize in virtual spaces. They're able to do things like shit, put the batteries in backs of 17 and 18 and 19 year olds to get them to go shoot up some shit. You see what I'm saying? That is a testament of how great they've been able to mobilize and how great they've been able to do things. When I say great, I'm not saying shoot people is good. I'm saying great in terms of you had a, a, a strategy of creating little, little, little common places not even not not just on TikTok. They know how to use different apps on social media to get people to go to 4chan or to get people to go to Discord. You know what I'm saying? Think about it. When we see them do it, the Proud Boys, or they did January 6th, that was uniquely organized on social media and TikTok was implicated in that. You see what I'm saying? So the reason why I say they are better is because when it comes to just strategies, methods, they better at making one. They better at coming together. You feel what I'm saying? Hey, listen, regardless of how much y'all think these folks is fighting between is Trump the king or is Ron the king, I guarantee you, after they get that shit figured out, you're going to have to worry about Bernie bros type shit. Like, man, Bernie or, Bernie or nothing. You see what I'm saying? So to me, I think that just, what is a better, and, and even this, 
there were a lot of young, impressionable boys that's black, that's white, that's Hispanic, that's Latinos that was able to get really roped in a pipeline that's going to get your ass all the way to Andrew Tate, Kevin Samuels and shit talking about putting them back in the kitchen. And it starts on like TikTok. TikTok can start off, give you a little smile, a little Andrew Tate video. And it's be a, it'll be an innocent one. Men should be strong and we should be, we should be confident. The next video, men should be strong and confident and bitch come here. Men should be strong, bitch come here and real women and slowly but surely you start to, man, next thing you know, you advocating and or talking about what happened, insurrection being good. Or now next thing you know, you're talking about wokeism and you're talking about a, hey, race doesn't matter, but the 1994 crime bill was racist and you should come off that democratic plantation. Hey, race doesn't matter, but I love to highlight myself as a, that's like, that's like, what? That's, that's yeah, that's that. Ran over though, but I feel I hope they answered the question, but they do it better. It answered a lot of questions, including some questions that are better than the ones that I actually asked, which I appreciate. <laughs> when I hear someone who really knows what's going on like you on a platform like this, which has both the ability to elevate humans and do wonderful things and the ability to drag us down like you just described, it kind of scares me. Because I don't know how we regulate that. It seems impossible to have the government pick sides. It seems very difficult to have a platform. They seem to really struggle with like keeping violence off or keeping people from dragging young men, like you say, into massive sexism or violence or support for, for evil people. Do you have any thoughts about how we fight this fight? to have, I don't know, good beat evil on these platforms? I think that uh, my motto is education is elevation. I know shit bring results when I see how much people are willing to invest for the pushback. So when we able to see the unique ways that Gen Z was able to mobilize in the streets of 2020, were able to mobilize on the virtual streets of TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, we recognize there's something important about education. When Ron DeSantis saying, don't say gay deal, he's trying to make sure we don't educate the youth about heteronormativity, about homophobia, about transness. You see what I'm saying? And trying to make sure we don't educate the youth on the distinction between sex and gender. When they say you can't teach about African-American studies in the classroom, we're recognizing that it's something unique about education. And that's the reason why so much money, so much lobby money, so much interest group money, so much, you know what I'm saying? That's the reason why it's being spent that way. When I think about how the Black Panthers got seen as the biggest threat to domestic security because they were empowering the youth, that let me know right there. When I'm learning about Nazism and I'm seeing how, hey, not only was this man killing Jewish people, but also the way he was able to impart his fucked up anti-Semitic views onto German youth, that's what made them dangerous. So we really come in and think about, hey, what is the best way to regulate what's going on. Well, hey, man, the great white philosopher, I think his name was Henry Thoreau, the government, the government's the best, government's the least, whatever he said. Hey, we don't need no government in this. We need people to be able to hold each other accountable, and we know that shit is effective. That's the reason why we know, hey, black folks, that we're going to be woke. We're going to be conscious and aware of what's going on. That concept of wokeness started making it where we started holding people to high perspectives. So instead of a white person playing with me in my head, they get called me woke. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, that person want to be respected, like, yeah, you woke warrior. So, um, so we're getting that how education, literally lab, l- raising levels of consciousness, literally giving people a language, rhetoric to be able to say what they mean, mean what they say. That's the best way of doing it. Hey, listen, you take your ass to TikTok right now. You say something fat phobic or colorist. Maybe them conservatives don't like it. But the other side of TikTok, really every other side of TikTok finna light you on fire. 
So what we so we see the government didn't tell us that fat phobia is wrong. We read books, recognized from an oppressive standpoint, the way that you think about body positivity, the way you think about health is really fucked up, and it has a disproportionate impact on fat people. If you say something, we own your ass. I don't need to write a law against you. Listen, listen, TikTok don't need to put a community guideline on you. We gonna take care of you. TikTok showed that. TikTok showed that. You know what? Hey, TikTok, the, 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 the people on TikTok showed that. The app thinks that this person saying this was not bad. The people of TikTok gonna deal with you and your content. That scares conservatives. Because now I don't need, now I don't have to go to, you know what I'm saying, news. I don't have to go through none of these major networks to approve my message. I click post and it's out to the world. Is there any way for you to know who is your audience? So you have numbers, you have some statistics. Can you tell who they are? Is there any way to communicate with them beyond just posting another video? Yeah, I mean, I got analytics that'll tell me like age differences, gender differences, where they're located. But a lot of the engagement really tells you who's following you and who's who's engaged, who's tapped in. And then really, it's really just like, I'm going to use this word again. It's a virtual ecosystem. So it's like, you know, you might rock with me a little bit on, on, on TikTok. You might find me on Twitter. And on Twitter, I'm a little bit more active and engaging with people. So now you're going to, you know what I mean? So that's, that's kind of how you build community. And then, you know, uh, emails, um, being able to build subscriptions. Like right now, I'm about to relaunch my Patreon to make it where I have exclusive content for people that really, really want to, you know what I'm saying, to, to get some content. So I'll be able to have, have me and you talking. I'll be giving my followers the opportunity to have a conversation like we're having. You see what I'm saying? Through Patreon, through subscriptions. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, just trying to diversify what you do and how you're doing it and make it where you don't have to be relying on the same institutions and organizations and businesses that you know is not for you. Uh, Are you uh, making a living doing this? Uh, right now, this is how I'm making my living. Right now, this is how I pay my bills and how I feed my kids and how I make sure my wife is taken care of is through uh, speaking gigs and me getting those speaking gigs from doing social media. You know what I'm saying? Right now, I'm trying to make it where I make more money from the views because I'm getting like millions of views weekly. But TikTok monetization doesn't pay good at all in terms of views. So, you know, um, yeah. So, so what is an ideal speaking engagement for you? Who would you like to speak in front of and who would you like to reach out to you and book you? I'm a well-traveled, well-seasoned public speaker, facilitator, workshopper, man. I've done it for administration and faculty at universities and at high schools. I've also done it for, you know, administrators or, you know, uh, CEOs, execs for like corporate, you know what I'm saying? So really it's like I do professional development, soft skills, conflict management, communication styles, speech styles, those type of things. But I also do like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to rebrand it because now the world, they messed it up, but diversity and inclusion stuff. So it's like really any audience that believes or any organization or business that believes that my expertise and thinking about identity and human relations can improve the way they deal with their customers and or their employees, then it's like, I'm ideal for you. But I got to come in and be able to say what I mean and mean what I say. If you want to book me and you want to say, don't get me wrong, I don't have to use profanity, right? So it's not that. But if you want to try to dictate what I say and how I say it, then I'm not the facilitator for you. You know what I'm saying? Do you find yourself going to like a old time tech institution, like an IBM or do you find like, what's the sort of people who end up booking you? Yeah. The, the businesses that mainly uh, book me are uh, small tech companies. So small software, small hardware companies. And um, 
Yeah, really just really just tech companies. And then and then uh some small like uh like nonprofits every once in a while we hit me up to do a workshop to uh make sure that there are people are thinking critically about implicit bias and microaggressions and hiring practices and you know things like that. But the main industry outside of higher education is really tech. Have you ever thought about running for office? When I was younger, yeah. And uh now that I do what I do, I get I get asked it a lot. <laughs> I would, I would bet a lot, a lot. Uh, to be real with you, man, I don't. Now it's something I don't rule out, but it's not something on my radar at all. Like I think right now, because I like expressing myself so freely, I don't think white America is ready for. You know, I don't think America writ large is ready for a black man like me to be able to say what I mean and mean what I say unapologetically on the polar opposite of what Trump was doing. You see what I'm saying? I think that a lot of the well-meaning, you know what I'm saying, uh, conservatives and Republicans, they say they like people to just say with this, that, and this, that, and the other. I don't think they're ready for somebody to, to have that same energy and say shit they disagree with. For my mental health, I don't think I'm willing to put myself through the scrutiny of trying to get elected for a position if I already know that the climate, I don't think it's ready for me. I say that to say as humble as possible. I think I'm a little bit before my time when it comes to like office. I don't think they're ready for me yet. Being, being real, like being straightforward. Like, I don't think they're ready for me yet. Y'all ain't about to kill me. Y'all ain't about to, I ain't, about, I ain't trying to be dead no time soon. I ain't trying to be incarcerated no time soon. I ain't trying to have you digging up my convicted felon, mama, daddy, my, I don't need you to do that. You see what I'm saying? I'm gonna make my money. I'm gonna teach. I'm gonna talk my shit and I'm gonna go home, take care of my kids. Maybe when I turn 40, 45, maybe I'll think about it more realistically, but at 32, I ain't, I ain't trying to take on that stress. <laughs> like, I think that's a, a, a very reasonable response. Is there one opinion that you hold that you haven't had a chance to talk about that you would like to say a thing or two about? Like, what's the next thing you're going to make a video about? What's something that you'd like to have out there that you haven't yet put out there that you feel strongly about? Um, being mindful of the audience. I'm going to try to say this with as due diligence as possible. because I, 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 I do know... Uh, as a black person, when we talk about what's going on in our community to white people or white audiences it can come off pathological, but something that's really been on my heart that I've been thinking about that I think I'm finally ready to give an analysis on is the distinctions between middle-class black people, lower-class black people, and how something happens in between there that makes it where white supremacy and anti-blackness is being replicated amongst black people. So I'm thinking of Chris Rock's new stand-up comedy and thinking of some comments that Deion Sanders made about recruiting players from single-parent homes versus two-parent homes. And thinking about what it meant for me being a first-generation college student, my mama and my daddy were convicted felons. They wasn't in fraternities or sororities. You see what I'm saying? So thinking about how respectability politics, thinking about how decorum, thinking about how proper speaking was weaponized against me and thinking about how that is in writ large weaponized against the black community. So a lot of us think about like the civil rights movement as something that was able to uplift the entirety of the black community. Something I learned when I was getting my undergraduate degree in African-American studies, the civil rights movement at best motivated one third of the black community. I come from the two thirds of the black community that got left in the dirt in the mud. What happens is it's like, hey, I'm a go getter. I'm black. So if I can get it, then you can get it. And we start to literally have the bootstrap mentality and we start literally being able to chastise poor black people from being poor. And we start to see how people like Chris Rock is able to then say, hey, there's a difference between niggas and African-Americans. Um, I'm a real nigga. I'm going to say X, Y, and Z. However, when Will Smith punched me, 
I thought that was fake because he's bigger than me. And my mama said I shouldn't fight in front of white people. It's like, mm, there's something there. And I know what you're doing, Chris Rock. You're doing the same shit to him. What black men used to do to me or my other black folks did to me in college. You are trying to play with optics in a way where you get to be black at the expense of me. And you get to be black whenever you want to, except when you don't want to be black and you distance yourself from it. So you get to talk about respectability politics and be unapologetic. Bitch this, bitch that. He made a colorist joke about, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about Chris Rock. And then at the end said, but mama, but when Chris Rock, when Will Smith hit me, the reason why I hit him back, because I was raised right. Yeah, that sounds like the same shit them folks be saying to me. I was raised right and I shouldn't do this in front of white people. I don't, I don't like that. You feel me? And now that I'm sitting on it, it's like, okay, well, the reason why I didn't say nothing about it in the past is because we had this idea of, hey, you questioning my blackness. You trying to take my blackness from me. Now, now I think I've thought about it enough where I'm ready to make my analysis and or defend it. Because now it's like something I say simplistically so I can get what I'm talking about. Over the past years, we'll be like, hey, you speak white. You tell somebody of color, they speak white. That's usually reduced to be like, how can you speak a color? That's dumb. Speaking proper, it's not speaking a race. Now it's like, nah, you is speaking color. The reason why you speak English and the reason why I speak English is due to colonialism. The reason why you speak English and the reason why I speak English is because those people over there said that this is the proper way to communicate. Don't tell me that the way that language operates is separated from race because literally the reason why we speak the way we speak is because we were colonized for colonizers so it's like and then get more into it like like you know what i mean but that's that's what i mean though like really thinking about how people of color can weaponize things outside the community because people in the community and thinking about how power privilege and domination operates in this realm that is a lot of thoughts that's a lot of complication i just watched chris rock's uh episode and i don't think i hate it. i, I don't I hate think it. You, you didn't like it at all no is that because you're a fan of of wills no what, i'm a fan not. of chris rock yeah I'm a fan i am of too chris i'm for, actually I'm a fan of both of them yeah know, i'm a fan but, of both of them yeah i just thought that i just think that he's a millionaire he's a millionaire that has a lot of resources when i watched that special he gave me Drunk ass uncle at the barbecue that has the mic and just want to say what's on his mind. A few things was humorous, but nothing was comedian like. You see what I'm saying? And it's just mm -hmm. like it's not. It's it's like I don't. It wasn't as funny as his previous specials, and he seemed uncomfortable throughout, didn't he? Throughout it, not only yeah. throughout it, he started like yeah. it's called selective outrage. You called it selective outrage. You start with making criticisms about blackness and black people, i.e. woke traps, and you end with giving criticisms about blackness and black people, i.e. my mama raised me, might not fight for the black people. If we do a quantifying of, okay, you spoke for an hour and five minutes, for 45 minutes, you talk shit uniquely about what's going on in the black community, about black people, and you literally copied and pasted what white supremacists say about us. I'd rather have the $20 yoga pants that's racist than have the $120. That's, that's what you said. So nothing you said was really being a thought leader. You wasn't being a trailblazer. You literally copied and pasted points that I can hear on Fox News, and you said it in a very niggifying way. You feel me? It's like that's not the same thing. You see what I'm saying? I would, love to, I would love to hear that commentary that you're working on, and I'd like to hear him hear it. You know, but I'm yeah, what I about to say, man. Chris Rock annoyed me so much where it was like, listen, man, you can talk all that shit you want to talk in front of white people as you feel. 
and you feel like nothing else should happen. You can call his wife a bitch. You can talk about who been inside of her vagina. You can call people dark skin, light skin. You can act like this, that, and the other in front of white people. You can do whatever you want. But if somebody wants to pop you in your mouth in front of white people for what you said, you fight like they went too far. So when did the violence happen? Do we know there are laws that you can't go into public spaces and yell fire because it will cause commotion? We know there are things called verbal assault, correct? So why is everybody making it where, hey, the violence didn't happen when the black woman was being offended and being ran through the mud for 10 years. The violence only happened when he got slapped. Now I call bullshit. You feel me? The same people making that argument is the same people that made the argument. Hey, when Colin Kaepernick was doing what he was doing, that created violence. He, he's, 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 he's being violent to my veteran military, this, that, and the other. That wasn't literal. That was, that was symbolic. You feel me? That was rhetorical. So don't tell me rhetorical violence don't operate. So to me, it's just, yeah, I go on and on, but I see with the time, you see my mind going out. I'm ready to talk some shit now for real. <laughs> well, I've warmed you up a little bit. Is, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Nah, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. How my mind work? I would I would I would have figured out the way to say it anyway if you didn't ask me. <laughs> I, I trust that you're right. Well, I really appreciate talking to you. It was a, a great honor. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, uh theconsciously.com. That's my website. If anybody's interested in finding out more about myself or finding out more about my service and my products, I have a lot of uh merch, you know, uh, education's elevation, research over me search. That's what a lot of some st- stuff say. I have an online class. Uh uh, online university that I call Conscious University. And right now I have a class in there that I created from my, myself completely the syllabus about identity politics. So if you're interested in, you know, supporting and or seeing more about what I have going on because you're interested in booking me, theconsciously.com. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity, man. I appreciate the time. That was Conscious. He is consciously on TikTok. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.